to the Beyond the Roundabout podcast. I'm Paul Johnston. And I'm Alex Hansford. Uh, and I'm at Paul D. Johnston on Twitter. Uh, at Alex Hansford. And this is a podcast about the UK tech and startup scene and pretty much anything we want to talk about with random special guests at different times. That's right. In this episode, uh, we're going to talk about UK digital strategy and... Uh, some ideas around that. We're going to talk a bit about uh, peer conferences and what they are and why you should go to them and just have a bit of a rant or conversation about Twitter. So, on to the first thing. So, basically, all the responses have gone in mm-hmm. uh, and we're now waiting to hear back and figure out what the responses could be. You know, the... the it's I mean, it's crowdsourced policy, isn't it? Crowdsourced policy is, it, is an interesting one because um, I wonder if the if it's actually going to make any difference. I wonder if they're actually going to make any use of what we say, because no. I wonder who's going to... Who's, is it going to be a shout the loudest thing? Is it going to be the people with the most influence are still going to put in something, and then they're going to go... You know, they're going to say, well, they're obviously more important than the, you know, the guy with his own consultancy who's the CTO of a startup with fewer than five people. Mm. They're not going to be interested, in my opinion, so much. But, mm. you know... It, I have. I think there's some validity in in every point of view. But if we listen to the people at the top, then we're going to get the same old, same old, aren't we? We're not going to get yeah anything innovative and new. Mm. And maybe we just need something innovative and new. Hmm. So yeah, no, I agree. Um, so shall I give you a bit of background? Mm. So the UK government is trying to replicate what it did in 2010. In 2016, by um, 2010, they tried to transform government into a digital thing Mm -hmm. rather than being a government with paper that did digital things on the top. And they actually succeeded in a a lot of ways. And the US government has followed suit and and used a lot of the people and ideas Mm -hmm. from our evolution. I wouldn't say it's a revolution but very good evolution. I think they've used a lot of those people to make some changes over there as well. So there's definitely a trend towards digital uh, digital government. Mm. But I think there's also a recognition that the government doesn't really know what to do and it hasn't got people involved uh, because the people involved who are doing the clever stuff are not working for the government. They're working for startups and they're working for enterprises in the tech world. So we've kind of reached a point now where the government's going... Hey, I know, it is that whole idea you said earlier about, you know, let's crowdsource. Yeah. Let's crowdsource some ideas from uh, from these clever people because, you know, we've got SwiftKey and TransferWise and let's pick out all the buzzwords of all the companies that have done really well mm-hmm. uh, and go from there and try and use their skills, which I think is a pretty good idea. And uh, they basically asked for a bunch of things, some various topics, unlocking digital growth, they wanted to find out how to basically take over from Silicon Valley as the key place to go and do right. tech. Slightly silly because I think it's better to be different and do something different. But I understand what they're trying to, you know, trying to create an innovative environment for tech companies, which I think is a great idea. Mm. Transforming government, so basically going one step further than, than the digital strategy that they put in place before for the government, which, you know, I think keeping on implementing, that's a pretty good idea. Uh, and I, you know, and they want a smartphone state. I'm not quite sure what that is, but it sounds quite terrifying to me. There's a um, lot of buzzwords. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's you know, we want a digital hub. 
We want we want um, uh, tech city, yeah. and then we want northern tech cities, and yeah. we want all these tech cities, and there's so they're loving the buzzwords at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I wonder whether whether actually the rest of the country can break away from London in the way that they think, but mm. I think there are ways of doing it, but they're not doing them at the moment. So they're looking at other thing, other areas. They're looking at things like uh, MOOCs. Uh, looking at education, healthcare, MOOCs are massive open online courses. Ah, right. So it's kind of, you know, the Open University, the OU have been doing this kind of stuff. There's companies like Future Learn out there that are doing this. And interesting spaces to be in, but they're not necessarily the the most exciting areas to work mm. in. But they have real value in, in providing training and mm-hmm. support and education. And they do talk about things like drones and driverless cars, but I think they're just they're fluff on the top of the clever stuff, if you ever ask me. So, um, yeah. and then they want to get the uh, and then the fourth thing they want to talk about is um, things like super fast broadband and actual operational things. You know, yeah. making the country work better. And I think that's a I think there are some really interesting things in that, but I don't think that's as important. So I wrote a blog about this and. Um, sent a response back in not quite sure if they were expecting it from someone like me or whether they were looking for other people I don't know mm. it wasn't really clear it was an open thing so I'll have my say if you ask for feedback then you, oh. give, it, you give it, it. <laughs> exactly well yeah. I do other people <laughs> don't I'm, I've got enough opinions give you some quick points about it it was things like at the moment, the, the tax system doesn't work for small businesses. It works for big businesses and it works for companies that have employees of a certain size and they're just churning over a certain amount of turnover. Yeah. And um, it doesn't really work for small startups. It's mm. not, you know, you, your employer's national insurance is on there and that's basically a tax on jobs, so that needs to go. And we shouldn't be taxing job creation. We should be encouraging innovation. And it, it doesn't do that. And, you know, but that's a, a minor point. But the investment schemes around around startups are interesting. In, I'm, I'm one of these people that thinks that the government shouldn't get in the way. Right. I think they should actually incentivise people with money mm-hmm. and funds more to invest in, in uh, to invest properly in proper companies. And that sounds like a strange thing to say, but at the moment, a lot of people invest because of tax breaks, and I think we should probably encourage people to invest a bit more wisely than that. Right. Ah well. I mean, it, it, insure. Um, sorry, NI is just frustrating for small business, yeah. Though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, NI is is not a. It's not something you really want to do or pay or care about when you're running a business. And actually, you know, it should be simple. Mm. The tax system should be simple for an employer. Mm. It shouldn't be so complicated that you have to employ someone else to do your employment payroll mm-hmm. and figure out how much tax. It should just shouldn't be that way. Right. Yeah. We, we can cut this bit out. It's dull. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can put that in as the extra right. bit. So I, I think the, the idea of spreading from the tech city base of East London for mm-hmm. startups, I think is actually a really important thing we need to do. Yes. There are a bunch of co-working spaces and things in London and tech city. And when you step out of London, there are lots of people who think they've got the same things elsewhere, but they really haven't because there just aren't enough people. There aren't enough techies. There aren't mm-hmm. enough 
entrepreneurs who've been there and done it with the experience to mentor and run those kinds of things. And it feels a little bit like outside of London, people are too inexperienced to really understand how to develop the hubs, to develop the investor relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to encourage the investors through incentivized schemes, actually. I think this would be quite an interesting one. Mm. Actually, if you invest in companies outside of London or in specific hubs, maybe, then you get a better deal than if you invest in them in London. So that it might actually create some some ways of doing it. Yeah, there's definitely a benefit to that. Britain is too London-centric. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's more so with tech. It's mm-hmm. not... It's not yeah, it's not limited to just tech, but yeah. but I think tech is um, is more London centric. Yeah, you know, it, it's probably more comparable to like fashion yeah. in in that it's it's so polarised. And fintech as well, because yes. all the financial tech is pretty much in London and the city. And, yes, and you know we we haven't done a good job of moving it out. Mm-hmm. And do you think community plays part in that? In terms of tech community or in terms of in terms wider of community? How, how can we encourage community outside of London? Do you mean community in terms of um, the community of techies or the community, the wider community of just everyone else as well? Well, I think if you're looking at it in the context of innovation, I don't mm-hmm. think that's limited to just tech. Mm-hmm. But I think a community of innovators can include tech Mm -hmm. and probably that would be something that should be encouraged because you know when you're outside of London actually you're not just limited to you know software developers you also um, you've got people who work on hardware they might work on specific um, sectors um, and they're innovating too but they're not talking to anyone else and and it's that that community element would be really powerful because when you put the two together, when you put yeah. the innovators together, then clever stuff happens. And also then investors can go, great, I want to invest. Where do I go for investing? And they can, yeah. they know where to go. There's a place they can, they can go for that. So that was my thinking. That was all. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think, I think with, with the idea of community hubs and the idea of getting governments involved with supporting community growth and, mm. and you know I don't like the word clusters I don't think it works with tech I think it's actually about communities and I think it's about generating uh, conversations generating uh, a, it's not about a buzz either it's about building relationships across a, a wide enough group of tech people and other people as well mm. that then gives you a critical mass to allow things to come out of it and I think there's some really really big opportunities uh, one of the ideas that I had within within this kind of space was to get council runs local hubs with central mm-hmm. government support and I think you know unless you allow the, the local government unless you give them the support they're not going to do it they've got no money yeah you know they just need to find some buildings that are empty of which there are many mm-hmm. and just allow government subsidised support of hiring the space and just leave it and just let people come it's not about the money it's about generating innovation and that's a very different thing yeah and it's also it could be really easy for councils to because councils generally have the property yeah and so you could easily work with 
people who uh, can help run the space mm-hmm. to, to, to build a community mm-hmm. and that would work really nicely so yeah. there, there's nice. a good there's a good match there that they should they should look at yeah, yeah. so one, the next thing that, that um, the government wanted to talk about was things around transforming how government works mm-hmm. based around based on what GDS have already done so the government digital service I keep on calling it the government data service and it's not <laughs> called it's the government digital service that's right GDS and they've they've done an amazing job actually some really interesting things and put some processes in place but actually it's it's become quite process oriented from what I've heard and very, you know, has, has lost that edge of innovation because it's grown and it's got to a point, but it's still, still cutting edge as far as government is concerned. It, it felt like they were almost starting from scratch. Yeah. Um, it to, was a to deliver To deliver stuff across government. Yeah. But once you've done that, then it, it becomes a, a, a beast of its own. Yeah. So, yeah, that seems very interesting. So, you know, the way that I would take it from where it is to, you know, if we were talking about the UK, it's mm. to turn everything into an API. Yeah. And an API is that, that wonderful thing of an interface. It's, it's pure data going back and forth, and, mm-hmm. and you're interrogating on a data level rather than, you know, trying to create a beautiful website and trying to do some design and everything else. You know, you actually can create a UI that is so minimal mm. that it it gives you exactly what you need, but allows services to be built on top and allows citizens to be able to do the things that they want to be able to do with the data, you know. So instead of saying, you know, we're going to build a mobile website to tell you about bins, although why you would do that, I don't know. Um, There's a need for that. There is, well, there is no need for it. Um <laughs> Well, maybe there is a little one, but um, yeah. you know, it's that whole thing of just, just give us an API, just give us an API across local government, and then spread it across national government, and make everything an API, and then you can build the websites and the services and everything on top of it. It will simplify government technology, and it should simplify procurement as well because yes. you can identify the elements of procurement that we do and don't need because a lot of procurement appears to be let's make it look pretty mm-hmm. uh, does it work properly well maybe and that's a problem with the web tech for years and years and years but you know it's certainly something i've seen within government where people get paid an awful lot of money to build beautiful things but functional useful not so much also there's there's a level of you know, we need to have a big support contract. <laughs> we need to have a big, yeah. you know, this needs to work for a period of budgeted time. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, we need this amount of architecture. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're dealing with just an API, that still needs to run, still yeah. needs to work. You know, you can't have an unreliable API, but it, it, it gives you a little bit more, more freedom to innovate Um Throughout the term, rather than just having a five building a five year um, uh, life cycle for for a big IT project, getting to the end of the five years and then having to go great now what do we need to do? Yeah. And meanwhile things have moved on. Yeah. There's some interesting um, thoughts about this on the GDS blog mm-hmm. actually um, about government as a platform. Mm-hmm. So seeing that taken forward and, and, and seeing that grow yeah. would be really good and definitely yeah. support that. Also, there's still still work, and I know it's ongoing, 
in terms of sometimes APIs aren't actually APIs in the government. Yep. They're uh, an XML feed, which is fine, but that links to a PDF. Yeah, or an um, Excel document, which is my favorite type. Yeah. Who uses Excel documents? Well, let's put it this way. It's proprietary. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, there's an education piece that needs to go on. But there's a part of me that's like, well, even if it is that, that's better than what it was. And it's an evolution. It's it, a constant it's a evolution. It's a good step. Yeah. And it, well, it's it a better moves step things than it forward. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where you, you get um, third parties that are supporting that. Yeah. Uh, open democracy and things like yeah. that. Um, are taking some of those... those um, things and, and making them work yeah yeah so the other the other part of the api approach which i really really like is that it does take a little bit of the support element uh, out of the long-term support element out of the equation because mm-hmm. if you if you basically say to a supplier you've got to deliver deliver us an api and we've and basically you could even have another supplier going you write us the tests and so you can basically go, you can basically say, have one person check whether the other person has done it. And if they've done it, then, then you've basically got something you can define, you can nail down, and you can leave. Mm-hmm. And if the supplier who produced it in the first place turns out to not be very good or anything else, you can just go, right, fine. We have an API defined, so we just need someone else to build that API better, please. Mm-hmm. Or you go, well, fine, we'll keep the support contract for the API and we'll deliver on top of it from somebody else. It's that... It's that um, it stops what a lot of people in the tech industry think is fleecing of the government through mm. support contracts and long-term relationships that that aren't healthy for for you know they're not taxpayers. Yeah, you know they're not good money for taxpayers and it's good value for taxpayers. And I think that's something that would be useful. Yeah, and it's happening in business, isn't it? So yeah. this is the thing: it's it's happening in business already. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting to the point where they're going, well, I don't want a long contract yeah. for something that I've built five years ago. Yeah. So it should be happening in government. Yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, there are issues with authentication and, um, you know, APIs are, are, are more complicated to secure and government is more complicated to secure. And I think, you know, it needs to be thought about, but it's not the world's most complicated problem. And things will come over time that will improve on the solutions that we could have but you know things like cognito aws cognito give you a hint as to the way you could go rolling tokens and and constantly updated information instead of usernames and passwords that end up being a nightmare yeah so i mean that's a um, and seen on tv that's post-it notes yeah so that's (laughs) a technical that's quite a technical uh solution which um you know, it's still very new. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think even just going to the simple element of um, something like OAuth. Mm-hmm. So, so it, would even, it would be a step, even, wouldn't it? Yeah, even just saying, you know... Well, Preferably you the secure version of OAuth. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and I know that, that that's part of the huge work that GGS are doing, mm-hmm. but they they do have deal with, with issues that a normal company wouldn't have to deal with but it does result in sometimes things being more complicated than they need to be and so my wife just got a uh, a passport renewed and had to go through the process of 
reaffirming uh, her identity online. And she's already had a government gateway ID forever. Um, so she looked that up, went and put it in, and, uh, and it didn't work because it had all been changed. And then she had to go through another step to verify. And uh, so that, that's quite difficult sometimes. It gets, it gets onerous, doesn't it? But yeah. then you kind of think about it from the other side. It, it's a difficult, it's a thorny problem mm. that I think government hasn't quite realised that you only need to make it better than the, the system that we have at the moment. You don't need to make it perfect. Mm. And you just need to iterate and create an iterating problem, iterating solution to a problem. And basically anything is better than what we had. So you don't need to make it that complicated. To be fair, it, it did... Um, it worked in the end. It was one of those instances where, you know, a few emails and it, there was some SMS verification. Uh, a few time, you know, a few uh, hours later, it was possible for, for, for us to verify without having to wait 10 mm-hmm. days for a letter. So it's still moved on a lot more. It's just... <laughs> I remember But it, it was frustrating. Um, oh. It's not perfect, but then nothing is. No, nothing is. <laughs> the, the, um, the other point I wanted to make with all of this is when, when we're talking about the future of transforming day-to-day life, one of the things that I think we should be really considering and pushing for the government to do is to really reconsider the education system because at the moment we have... It's not that I don't like schools. Mm-hmm. I think schools are doing very well, and I think I think a lot of schools are derided for bad uh, results and bad league tables when actually mm-hmm. they're doing a fine job on a number of levels with brilliant kids, and I think we should be a lot more proud of them. Mm. And also, limited resources as yeah, well. Yeah, and yeah. the resources are... Uh, well, let's blame the global financial crisis for everything. That seems to be what the government does. Uh, you know, we, we want to be able to say going forwards that we're still at the forefront of education. Education from the UK is still seen as certainly in probably the top three of education systems in the whole world. It may not be in terms of results and everything else, but it's certainly viewed in in India and China and various other places as as an exemplar. And we need to keep that going. We, you know, other countries are beginning to look at the digital stuff and the, the future schools and online and offline. And, you know, we have got the opportunity now to do university courses for free online and yeah. get degrees. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't difficult. The technology is there, but we're not pushing it into our schools because we're so bothered about league tables. And I think we just need to step away and go, actually, we need to we need to remember that school is about learning and it's about, you know, getting kids to really understand things, to be passionate about subjects and to find ways of, you know, putting back into society. They can put back into society by being really good at a specific subject and not, not having to be a jack-of-all-trades at 16 and then not have any clue what they're going to do at A-levels and then go to university and specialise. And it just frustrates me because some kids are just great at lots of subjects. Some kids are practical, still very clever in a, in a different way and could be you know, given other subjects and other ways of doing things. And we have this thing called the internet. We should be using it, but we're mm-hmm. not. <laughs> Rant over. Um, <laughs> To wrap this bit up, because I think we've talked about it far too much, one of the things that I think we should 
we should all be more bothered about what the government thinks in terms of strategy and online strategy and digital strategy. And I think we should be pushing more and more. I think the idea of having a crowdsourced solution is a very good one, mm -hmm. actually. And I think we should have been given more notice and more time. Mm. But we've got somewhere and we've got an opportunity to spend a few years doing something new. But if we can have a process where we're doing that, then great. But what I, what I really want to come out of this is the idea of a moonshot mm -hmm. for the UK. And I think it should be digital. I don't think it should be a moonshot. Do you think it's gigabit internet for everyone? Or? It would be a start. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how you do that exactly, but that's why it's a moonshot. It's why it's hard. We do things because they're hard. This is me quoting Kennedy now. But I think we don't have enough ambition we still look at Silicon Valley as, as it's always going to be better. Mm -hmm. And while I earlier said pretty much it's, you know, we shouldn't be trying to better them, we should be different. Yes. And we should be different in the way that British people are different mm -hmm. with the British culture and the British ideals and the way that we design things is so much better than the US. Mm -hmm. And we've got different skills. We should put them to use and we should make it work. But anyway, okay. I, I think we can leave that there. That's that was a very long discussion about government, but um, there's a part of me that's excited about it. I don't know about you, but yeah, yeah, it's um, it's all right. We'll trim it in post. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. That, that was a long discussion. That was yeah, that's quite long. So we're we going to move on. Talk about mm -hmm. peer conferences. I wrote uh, a blog post about this. It was because I hadn't heard the term peer conferences, and it was something that Alex and I talked about when we were at our most recent conference, actually. Yeah, Monkey uh, Gras. Monkey Gras. And uh, like Mardi Gras, but with a monk. <laughs> we didn't name it, we just went. But uh, it was the idea that actually, uh, the thing we really enjoyed about Monkey Gras and the thing that we enjoy about a number of conferences is that idea of being with your peers. And those peers are at a, of a, of a certain level that give you validation that you're, you're you know, somewhere near the top of the tree, mm -hmm. but also challenge you because you feel like you're, you're nowhere near. There's, there's always people ahead of you. And, and it's the same for everyone. You know, we all feel inferior to quite a few people in these kinds of conferences. And it, it really gives you a, a lift and a kick as well. And I think that they're the... They're the inspiring things, and that's what I think a peer conference is all about anyway. But um, what, what do you think? Because we, we kind of chatted about it before, haven't we? Yeah, it's... Um, so what's, what interests me about a peer conference is you spend most of your the year um, working on specific projects, and, mm -hmm. and they're very specific. You, you know a lot about them. And you can't always share the trials and tribulations that you've gone through to yeah. get it to that point. And so what's nice about a peer conference is that you hear from people, like-minded people, who are at that level that you can, you can um, understand, talking about the issues that they experienced. Mm -hmm. um, and you can then use that experience and say, ah, oh, that, that's... That I can relate to that yeah. because I I had a similar experience when I was um, delivering the following product yeah. or whatever. 
And so what's nice about that is you get to hear their experience, but also then you get the chance to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that really helps because when you start talking to them, you realise that actually they cover, you know, they're dealing with the same challenges that you're dealing with. And you're, you're both dealing with tough um, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might, the, the end solution might be different. Yeah. And it might be a different scale, you know, you might be a, dealing with a small thing, whereas they're dealing with a, a massive, um, you know, multinational problem. Yeah. Um, but the actual solution in, and, and what you actually need to do it is the same. Yeah. And, and so, and, and equally, you know, they have similar frustrations that you do. So I always found that quite empowering because it gave me an understanding of, yeah, these are issues that everyone deals with and there aren't, there aren't always straightforward answers um, and people work through to, to do the best solution, but there, there isn't a set right and wrong answer. Yeah. That's interesting though, isn't it? The, the set right and wrong answer, we, you know, we kind of, we're almost conditioned in, in tech to have a right and a wrong answer and, we don't, and, and you find that sometimes there's a third, third way of doing things that's actually better than, that you've you never even thought of and it comes out of someone having been working within, you know, craft beer, which is generally seems to what happens with monkey gras. But um, I think the, uh, the really fascinating thing that you've mentioned a couple of times is the being able to talk to people afterwards yes. and it's the size of the conference makes, makes a huge difference. You know, the, the 100 to 200, maybe a little bit more than that, that size of conference is, is a peer conference. If you've got, you know, a thousand or something, you can't have that intimacy with, with enough people to actually feel like you're a part of something you just you're being talked to and I think that that you know that size the expertise that you get I, I think those those things are really key with a conference like that because otherwise you end up with you, you lose that that person telling you something and then you being able to go and have a conversation with them because everyone's on the same level and you realize that actually the guys that stand up even at the big conferences and talk are they're not that good. They've just talked a lot about a subject and they've spent a lot of time talking about a subject. They've learned a lot about a subject and, and there's, there's a big difference between someone who stands up and sells and, there's a, and someone who is passionate about a, an idea or a technology who gives a talk that inspires you. Mm. Two different things. Because, you know, we've, we've both been to many of these and you know, the idea of turning up and being sold to is actually not interesting at all. Yeah. So let's talk about Monkey Grow in particular. Yeah. Um, because it's a conference that you introduced me to, mm-hmm. which we've now been going... I've gone for three years, you've gone for four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about what that is and why people should find a conference that's like that, but mm-hmm. not that one. Yeah, don't come to that one, because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't get in. Um, I think, I think so Monkey Gras is a single-track conference. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to get 17 different speakers on 15 different topics. You're try- you, you basically have one person speaking to everyone the whole time. Mm. Uh, it's also uh, wrapped up in uh, the madness that is James Governor. Yeah, and it, his personality shines through, and that part—that's part of what makes it interesting—is that it, there's there is a personality to it. Some of the some of the conversations you have are crazy, but they are brilliant at the same time. But he he requests—he doesn't always get it—but he requests new talks 
mm. each time. So it's, you, you know, talk about a theme. And this year's theme was side projects and how side projects can change the way you work and make a difference in your life. And I, and I think that's it. It made, it made a real impact on me that actually I realised I'd had a bunch of side projects. And those side projects allowed me to learn technologies and to learn mm. uh, techniques and to try things without hurting anybody. Yes. That have meant that I now can do things that most people can't. And it's not the kind of thing you think about until you, you step back and go, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. So, you know, that was, that was Monkey Gras, two days. So there was an evening where we all drank beer mm-hmm. and we talked about how you make beer. And I don't like beer, which is a source of constant amusement. It's helped. It it's helped me learn to love uh, craft beer. So I think, <laughs> I think that's, that's that's a positive. good thing. Uh, and I think James would, would want to hear that. Yeah. But also, I think the the interesting thing about the conference is it's not just a tech conference. Mm-hmm. It's it's a conference that that, that presents things that are slightly unusual and slightly um, not something you would necessarily think of. So last year it was all about Nordic craft, which was great because it gave us an insight (laughs) into the cultures and uh, the ways that that works. But it did it in such a a positive and fun way Mm -hmm. that that you can't help but take that back. Yeah, and it's... it made me realise how much more like the Nordic countries we are as a nation mm. than uh, than we are Europeans. And actually, um, there was an article in one of the papers recently that said, are we more Nordic and Scandinavian than European? And actually, I was like, yes, we are. It's quite clearly obvious to me that we are. But I think that, the, you know, it's not a tech conference. No. It's a, an inspirational conference where tech comes in and we have beer. If you're if you're within a startup culture, that makes more sense. Mm. If you're within an enterprise culture, you need that kind of thing to come out of your bubble of I just do one thing, yes, and I just do this one thing until someone tells me to do something else, mm. and and it it makes a huge difference. You know these things, these conferences that you know the bigger conferences that people go to, they don't have that as I said the intimacy, but they don't have that freedom to discuss things that are outside the realms of the conference. Yeah. And I think that freedom is actually quite important in terms of an innovation mm. spin. Because if you if you haven't got that freedom, you can't ever have the release of ideas into different spaces mm. that give you those moments that, that inspire you to do something new or do something different or create a new idea. I don't know if any ideas have come out of Monkey Gras other than Antiamo, which is the yes. big one. Yeah. But you have a look at some of the things these people are thinking about and you go, that's crazy and brilliant all, all at the same time. Mm. And it, it, it is inspiring. And I think you wouldn't get that within the, within the corporate world. And, mm. and you kind of have to have a little nod back to some of the um, old school unconferences and the mm. bar camps of yeah. this world and uh, the uh, mashs of this world with various people getting rained on in Alexandra Palace. <laughs> and um, you know, but but the thing that those kinds of conferences give you, and the things that Monkey Gras gives you, are stories. Yeah, stories of the conference. You know, we can still talk about Monkey Gras mm-hmm. even a you know a few weeks later, and it's it still makes us smile. It still gives us yeah. that moment of can't believe we sat and listened to a talk on 
knitting or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it's it's key to those stories. It seems that stories fit somewhere in here, so that they're actually a really important part of tech and innovation, but they're not seen as that very often. No, that's right. I mean, I think even on a, in a smaller scale, going to meetups is a good way of starting that. It, it's not it's not the same as a conference, but it's a, a good way of getting yourself out yeah. of the box that is, you know, life at work and then life at home. Yeah. And then, you know, so... Well, well, yes, and I agree, but I think the, the thing to say about meetups is they're not big enough. You've got to have... No. You've got to have... You've got to have experts of some yes. sort. You've got to have someone who comes along and gives you that the mm. skill of actually we do X and and we're one of the best companies in the UK and the world, and we touch on da 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 da. da. These subjects are what we know, mm. and you need those people to look up to and go. It's not that hard. Yeah, and I think we we get that from Monkey Grow. We get that mm. from various places, but. Um, I think a lot of people outside of London don't see it. And I think if you end up going to the big trade shows, which are for trade, yeah, not for inspiration, then you don't get the same level of... Uh, you don't get the same scope within that um, as you would in the in the more intimate peer conference style. Mm. And, uh, so that's peer conferences. I think that's so uh, quite... Go, a, yeah. go to a peer conference or go to a conference? Yeah. Go to a conference and turn it into a peer conference by making stories. Mm. For the next section, I thought I would say uh, hello to Amy, who's joined us for talking about Twitter. Thank you. Uh, Looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. I might tweet it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so. Yes, we're going to talk about Twitter. Twitter's had a bit of a rocky road, hasn't it? The last um, rocky road, few lots few of marshmallows. Weeks. Yeah, and uh, a bit of a raspberry ripple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Anyway, rocky road and raspberry ripple. Uh, yeah. it hasn't had a kind of smooth, chunky caramel just sitting there getting on with it, has it? I guess the problem is you could say a bit, a bit flaky. <laughs> oh, um, other chocolate variations are available. <laughs> <laughs> whisper so so what's so what's the problems with twitter at the moment <laughs> sorry i'm trying to keep it on. oh you're doing a brilliant job adverts adverts are annoying aren't yes. they really annoying so yeah we need to talk about adverts so so the the problem is twitter went public mm-hmm. so they obviously got extra market capital which is great and investment but the problem is that the stock market likes to see acquisition and it likes to see return on on that. So it want it wants to see what well, investors want increase, more money. <laughs> well, they want to see an increase in user number, in user numbers and yeah. engagement, and they want to see the advertising platform yeah. to grow into a profitable part of the business, mm-hmm. which is really dull, but it's true, and that's why a lot of the things that are successful now, all of a sudden, are being filled with ads, is because they're trying to push it. The word is monetize, and I hate yeah. that word. But I mean, it, the thing is that it's a long way. It's, it's a long way away from what it was, which was just a massive communications mm-hmm. and you know real time platform and everything else. So I think we're just we're, we're a long way away from that. It, it's not the first time that people have struggled with Twitter because <laughs> it had quite an issue of 
on onboarding. So when you're a new, mm-hmm. when you're a new user, it was really difficult to understand what Twitter was and how to use it. Mm-hmm. And they, that, I think that's still a problem. Um, but I think I think there's I think there's there's some interesting types of people on Twitter now. Actually, I think there's the uh, you know the the everyday casual person who's come on quite late, who's very much kind of you know they're just using it to find out about stuff and maybe just you know use a hashtag here and there and you know follow celebs follow celebrities and, stuff, yeah. and they use it in a certain way. Yeah. And I think for someone like me who was on it very early, then it was a very different platform back then. It was a very was completely different. You know, I remember yeah. still being able to see the public stream of everything. And it, I could still follow it. It was, you know, it was ridiculous because mm-hmm. you, you got lots. But you could start conversations with people that in different. It was a, it was an odd communications platform. Yeah. But then it got too big, and then we all couldn't do that anymore, and it wasn't quite as fun. Mm-hmm. See, that, um, that's back in the day when Stephen Fry would follow you back. Yeah, Stephen Fry doesn't follow anybody anymore. No. no. So <laughs> I don't know. Twitter's got this got this strange group of people. But then this, the thing is that Facebook does as well. You know, so you have this, Facebook's got teenagers and old people, and not a lot in between as far as I can see. I think to teenagers anything over about 25 is old. We're all lumped into the same group. But I think Twitter Twitter has, has a real value in the terms of, in the real time, and the real time information and yeah. everything else. You know, that whole, what's going on right now. And that's what still I use Twitter for, which is, you know, groups of people, hashtags and then seeing what happens and I still think it's valuable for that so so is that why there's such uncertainty about the impact of the algorithmic newsfeed because that's something that's going to be introduced on Twitter soon and just just announcing that that was actually going to happen (laughs) in the future not even with a time scale has you know knocked a few points off of their stock price, and people are saying it's the end of Twitter, and it's come. Now, ironically, the only thing I've seen about this was somebody tweeted about it, <laughs> saying, "If you want to opt out of Twitter's new algorithms, click here for an article that tells you how." I didn't click there because I didn't know what they were talking about, but that's the kind of Twitter user I am. <laughs> so, can you just explain a little bit about what's going on? So, it's, e- it's easy to see if you think about Facebook and you think about Twitter. So, if you think about Facebook, initially it started off that your newsfeed was in the order that it was posted. So, you, as you scrolled down your newsfeed, you were essentially going back in time. So it was, but it was all in order. So you could literally see the most recent thing at, at the top. Um, and so what Facebook did is they they progressively hid that from the interface, showing you a um, newsfeed that was prioritised by engagement and prioritised by what other people thought they you know liked and and interacted with. And the the thing with that is that it people people actually. They hate it, but they they engage with it, so it actually works. Um, so although um, for me, I I still look for the most recent. They've progressively so eroded the, the the benefit of that to the point where half the time I scroll down and I'm reading things that I didn't spot before and going, oh, that's good. And then halfway through it, I go, oh no, I'm not I'm not I'm not doing it the right way that I want to do it. I'll go and find the the most recent thing. The thing the thing is that we've we've. The thing that we want to be able to do is curate it the mm-hmm. way that I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what 
Facebook has tried to do, and that's what Twitter is thinking about doing, is, is I'm thinking about, I'm at work, I want to look at work-based stuff right now. That would be the yeah. kind of thing that I would imagine that they're going to achieve. But, uh, you know, Twitter's got this, got this weird kind of, I don't know why they need to do that bit. So, I don't know why that's a necessity. I don't think, you know, I, I'm used to Twitter being a certain way, and I think most people are used to Twitter being a certain way. Changing that strikes me as a bit of an odd thing. I think do. the problem is that if you look at Twitter at a certain time, you miss all of the in- potential interactions with your contacts that happened early in the day because there's so much of it now. And so if you're only following maybe 50, 100, 100 friends, it's, it's easy to, to kind of scroll back a bit and you'll get most of the day and you kind of... But, but if you start following more and more people, yeah. it becomes impossible to keep track of that. And the, the, the problem is that with Twitter, because it's got that immediacy, you can lose you know, something really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you're literally, there's a power cut and you go onto Twitter, <laughs> you go onto Twitter um, and you go, is anyone else having a power cut? And then you get two or three people. Which would be down. intriguing on, a, on an electronic um, device, wouldn't it? But if, I, but if it turns... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, you just have to hope that there's there's, batteries, mo- there's batteries. mobile power. But, um, <laughs> but the thing is that if you did that, you know, you wanted to, to see whether someone had had a power cut earlier that day, Twitter's rubbish at that. It, yeah. it's, you can't finding, finding historical information is not what Twitter's about. And it never was. And yeah. it needs to address that somehow, but I'm not quite sure what they're talking about is exactly the right way of going about it. Mm. Anyway, it's mean, just a, a different... It's a different um, approach because I, th- I still think in they're being hammered for not being Facebook. Yes, you know. And the funny bit is that if you look at if you read in between the lines, what you're actually looking at now is that Facebook has Instagram and Facebook has all of these other things that lots of people are using, but they're not the same. They're different mm-hmm. groups of people. And in a, in a funny way, what what would make more sense for Twitter would be to do something like that, which is to buy other types of companies and they've done some of this but not in the same kind of way because I yeah. think they haven't had the, the clout to be able to do so mm. um, but to the buy those an entirely different <laughs> as well. yeah that was mine was with a C clout is a terrible terrible idea trying to decide how good you are at social media through a metric is a terrible I saw, there was another metric I saw today was it today or another day I can't remember that was um, uh, telling you how gender biased you are because of the number of people, the, the last few acts, so replies and everything else that you've done, is it more male or female? And I came is. out as like 12% female and 80... You know, it's like, hang on a minute. Let me, let me just work out my, my gender split on the actual number of followers. And then I'm like, well, most of the people I follow are men. So, I, so does that mean I need to follow more women or is it that I need to tweet to more women or is that actually not the most appropriate thing that I could do? So um, let, let's, let's, let's put gender bias onto another topic. We'll, we'll do another, you don't want me to start we'll on gender another, bias. That gets me into real trouble. We'll do another podcast about that. Um, and, and it'll have anyway. ten times the listeners. Especially um, <laughs> when I get going. <laughs> Yes, thank you for letting me in, the token girl. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But, you know, Twitter... Do you, I mean, do you, are we still going to use Twitter in five years' time? Is it still going to be around? Are we going to want to use it? 
I think I've been using it about five years, so I probably will be. My use of it has changed. Mm-hmm. I used to be, be a prolific tweeter, mm-hmm. whereas now, generally, I, I tweet the things that I don't want to put on Facebook because I don't want my stepmom to see. <laughs> <laughs> Hiding from your family. Yes. Is that what it is? Yeah, I know that feeling. Mm. Sometimes I tweet about things that I want to broadcast. Quietly. And then, and then I... No, I tweet about things that I want to make a statement about, whether it's professional or... Or, or, or complaining to brands mm. or something like that, and then Facebook becomes the kind of the back channel, the kind of yeah. chat to your friends about stuff that that you wouldn't. Post. It's what you do down the pop. Yeah, a little bit, not, not bit like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah, it's kind of, and that's why. But yeah, right. They are being, um, they're being um, sort of really blamed for not being Facebook. And so, like, there's a huge um, issue at the moment with the removal of the 140 character yeah. limit, which will happen because actually no one's limited by that anymore, and yeah. and and it's it's it's, not it's, an it's an old limitation. Histor- yeah, it's a historic uh, design that is no longer relevant. And but there's something so brilliant and unique about that tiny amount of information and just having to be that concise. Because I'm terrible at it. I am absolutely. I, I, I wrote an email in, a, in an email list today, which I, I literally the first line was the only bit that meant anything, and then the rest of it was an explanation of the first line. It was like ten lines later. I'm like, hang on, I could just delete this bit. It wouldn't. I'm terrible at being. Can you not tell from this response? Terrible at being concise, and 140 characters is actually a real, really useful thing for me to do in terms of getting my idea out there. So if I was Twitter... I, wouldn't, I don't want to get rid of the 140 so if, if I was Twitter, I, would, I wouldn't count the, the at symbol. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't count any um, uh, mentions of, yeah. of anyone. I also wouldn't count any links. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't count any hashtags. And this, yeah, potentially that's pro, prone to abuse, but equally I, you know, within reason. But what it would do is it would mean that my sentences don't have to be with poor... Spelling and, and grammar and and cutting out <laughs> cutting out so much sentence that it becomes really difficult to to dis- discern because the thing that you can't do on Twitter that you can do on Facebook is you can't put a quote up on Twitter unless you, you do quote, it as an image. Yeah, well, you can do certain things. It's just uh, you still. It's I agree that it's it's the way that we use it has changed and and it's not as useful. It's not as easy to do now as it used to be, but, but people work around it. It's a, it's a, it's. I feel it's more flexible than Facebook. Oh, it is because because a lot of the a lot of things like are it. changing. A lot of things that have changed were um, instigated by users. So that's how replies came in place, and that's why you still get the the dot in front of your when you're applying and you want it to be public, yeah. then people Strange, do that. Isn't it? And it's, it's bizarre because that wasn't intended feature at all. And it's just, it's just in there. Someone over there is tweeting. Is saying... Well, no, I'm actually going to see what my latest tweets were and the nature of them. <laughs> so bear with... I think I really want to stick with 140 characters. Because yeah. for me, that's what makes Twitter Twitter. Without a restriction on words and making you think and making you concise, it's just another blog. It is, isn't it? it? It is that. That restriction is actually quite key and is part of its charm. And and the thing is, you know, I think Twitter will still be here in five years' time. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it will be different. 
And I think it will be different in a, in a kind of, it could reinvent itself to be the world's slack. Right. If that makes sense. Mm. Because that's what it was, actually, in my head. I, I think if I look back to the early days, I think that's what it was. So, I just found a very funny tweet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think so we're having, we're having the experience. Let's my last five tweets. Uh, the last two tweets were related to work. Yeah. Just because I was having a bit of a moan, but in a funny way. Yeah. I don't like putting anything on Twitter that isn't funny. Because to me, why would anyone bother reading it? So, um, and then I will, I will read these tweets, my third and fourth previous tweets. And I'm not going to tell you where I was when I wrote these tweets. I have now reached a point in my life where I no longer care who can hear me in a public loo. <laughs> Followed by, for over 30 years I've held myself back until the hand dryer is on. No more, my friend, no more. And that basically is how I tweet. I tweet silly little things that I think of in my head and they make me giggle. And I think I will share them with people who I still have some form of anonymity with. Mm-hmm. With Twitter, when someone finds your Twitter handle, they see your picture and a sentence about you. They don't have instant access to too much information. Yeah, you're not automatically a friend. No. Whereas on Facebook, I am an... an There's an intimacy, isn't there, that you yeah. kind of is, is implied in the whole idea of Facebook. I'm an administrator on a very, very large Facebook group for local mums. And when somebody wants to join this group, we're very protective because there's over 6,000 members who want to make sure we only let in people who are from our area and are essentially our mums. So when someone wants to join it, through Facebook, I can see all their profile pictures. I can decide whether or not they are a mum, mm. whether or not they're lo- locally. I can then go and see whatever they hide. I can still see the groups that they're members of. Are they all this area based? Are they from everywhere else? Is it someone who's blatantly just trying to push some Nutribullet rubbish? Therefore, <laughs> we don't really want them in the group. I can find out an awful lot about someone by going onto their Facebook page, no matter how locked down they think it is. Whereas Twitter, you got me in a purple wig, a funny phrase, and that's it. And some tweets. And some tweets, if you're lucky. But I, my, lucky. I think I have a locked profile. Yeah. But that's interesting because I didn't see your tweets. No. But that's I don't because... tweet all the time anymore. It's a rare treat to tweet. Yeah. And, uh, but also because I, really I don't treat, check. Treat. <laughs> I'm going to patent that. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. I. I think there's. I think Twitter is has always been the place where you can't always find things. It's not. It's not a finding platform. It's a now platform. It's a. Which is why when you go to a conference and you there's a hashtag and you follow the hashtag, that's enjoyable because it's a limited amount mm. of information and a limited number of people, and you can be funny in that environment and you can enjoy. And most of my tweets happen around conferences now. And it gives a, a, a public back channel, which is which other people watch. And I think there's a lot of good things in that. But I think we've we've kind of I don't know. I think there's I think there's a certain amount of propaganda around the share price dropping and the this that the other happening and you know problems here and there. And it's not Facebook. I think there's a, a bunch of problems in terms of a perception of what Twitter is, rather than the fact that it's good or bad. Yeah, but I think so. I I have two hundred and 79 um, that I'm following, mm-hmm. so I'm following 279 people, or accounts to be fair. So if I can't see what's happening throughout the day once a day, if I have to be on there like every hour or mm. something, then you can you can see the problem that mm-hmm. users have. Um, and I think 
The thing is with Facebook, it's the case of people expect to be seeing everything, the newsfeed. But the reality is actually what Facebook doesn't say is that you're only seeing part of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas Twitter mm-hmm. tries to be transparent and says, no, no, you got everything, you just missed it. It's, it was but, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is that actually I think, I think Facebook's not the problem for Twitter. Mm. I think Instagram's the problem for Twitter. Because Instagram is the beautiful way of, of watching data go through from lots of different people. And it's fun, and it's enjoyable, and, and, you know. But it's not perfect. It's limited. So it's, it's limited, but so is Twitter. Yeah. But uh, anyway, I, th- I think, it, uh, is Twitter going to uh, fall apart in the next five years? I don't think so. Is it going to be the same? I don't think so. A universal communication platform would be nice. So that uh, Twitter being that universal platform yeah. would be Public. Good. It's the public yes. forum, isn't it? So yeah, that would be nice. That's that's maybe you should just rebrand as forum and be done with it. So that's episode one done. If you reach this point, then well done. We hope you enjoyed it. So we'll put links to the articles we've talked about in this um, in the show notes at beyondtheroundabout.com. And we would love to hear your views. We want to engage with you, find out anything that you think we should talk about. Feel free to tweet us uh, with the hashtag Beyond the Roundabout. Um, remember, it's at Paul D. Johnston and... At Alex Hansford. So get involved, tweet us, like us on SoundCloud, tell your friends and uh, have fun. So next time we're going to talk about... Uh, we're going to talk about CTOs and startups. Brilliant. Can't wait. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. I'm very happy to take the role of random interjector. That's fine. I think if we do this again, you're going to be around anyway. So, you yeah. know. Mm, I've lost. Uh, oh, here we go. It just seems pointless to me having a stylus. I do Although, you do look like you're holding the most enormous tablet in the world. Uh, the thing is, it made sense for me to have a Windows PC mm-hmm. and. If I was going to buy a PC, I might as well buy a Surface because it's the same price as a decent PC and, and it does both jobs. Yeah, so what I did is I actually, I actually used it for note-taking. Wow, actual notes. In, well, kind in... of. My writing's awful and, and it, it's, it's worth... It's, if you it's, lean on it, does it notice? It's not bad. So if I put my hand there... It some, sometimes it, it, it's meant to um, correct for that, but obviously if you it, it doesn't always because sometimes it thinks are you touching while you're not. <laughs> but um, but it is useful, so it kind of works. If I add a new page, the nice thing is I need to things to tweak, but I can give it lines and then I just start writing. But it's not perfect, and and the other thing that I would like is I'd like a like button that distills that, so it actually mm-hmm. reads it. 
because what you, the, you, you can do, which is um, if I show the keyboard in this mode. Um, yeah. Like when you've that. got a keyboard right so there. When I've got that, yeah, no, it's not a great example. But then I can actually say, you know, and it will bring it up, which is quite good. So it does actually, it can actually um, do handwriting recognition, which is pretty good. But are you actually ever going to use that? Not hugely. I think it's, <laughs> uh, for me, I, I, I think the, the writing notes is something that I'm kind of pleased with, but it's a little forced. Mm-hmm. The but thing, the thing that I've always found with I do all of like, these things. This is what I like, though. So yeah. if, if I say, blah, 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 and then go, oh no, I don't want that. You can rub out a that's word. Nice. That, that's nice. That's quite That's reassuring. Actually. <laughs> um, so the stylus can draw and rub out, just like you can with a pencil on a piece of paper. Yes. Wow. I know. Oh, uh, so what, how did we come up with this technology? It's, it's all right. It, it's kind of fun. I, I like it. And the, the style, it's, it's um, the keypad, is, uh, sorry, the, the, the um, type pad is all right. Of all of the implementations of this, because this is the Pro 4, not the, the 3 and 2 have issues. And that but, doesn't. But this is all right. You know, the only thing is, it's, it's, not bad. it's a bit more, it, I wish it was slightly more stable. How much is it? Well, this is an i5 and was just under £800. Wow, that's um, that's a lot. Kind of, but if you're comparing it to a Mac, it's not. It's, it's, it's not, actually it's, not. It's, it's cheaper than a MacBook Air. Yeah, new MacBook Air. Yes. So it's like a comparable price. Yeah. And because I've got that as a contractor, I haven't seen the tax thing yet. But I'm hoping <laughs> that I'll probably have paid like four hundred quid for it in practice because yeah. of, of it'll offset quite a bit my tax. Yeah. No, it will. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was fun, fun. wasn't it? Might have to get Caroline involved. She'd just sit there going, oh my goodness, what a load of crap you talk.